0: I'm Elle Camheera, and thank you for listening to Subject to Power. 300 years before the field of psychiatry was born, William Shakespeare was analyzing violent men, figuring out why murderers murder. Widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language, Shakespeare brought to life characters whose complex inner lives are fully relatable to us still, because of his precise understanding of human psychology. I have two very special guests today. Jim Gilligan, who's an American psychiatrist who has spent his life studying causes and prevention of violence, working with violent men in American prisons. Jim pioneered programs in those prisons that were extremely effective in reducing violence, drawing on Shakespeare's plays and David Richards, who's a law professor teaching constitutional and criminal law, and is the author of 20 books on human rights, justice, feminism, and gay rights. Together, they've just written a new book called Holding a Mirror Up to Nature, Shame, Guilt, and Violence in Shakespeare, about what they learned in prison, and much more. A big part of investigating male power is, of course, looking at male psychology. And the idea of using William Shakespeare's writing as a kind of case study to look at this is brilliant. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit who you are in your work and how you came to this idea.
1: If you look at the introduction of our book, Jim describes how he came across this. So, Jim, maybe you should speak to that. Sure. I am a psychiatrist. And
2: in the midst of my psychiatric training, I had my first exposure to something I'd never heard of before called prison psychiatry. And that uh, I decided that the study of not just violent crime, but violence generally, even legal violence and political violence, was really the most important social problem to which I could devote my career as a psychiatrist. So I ran prison mental health programs for the Massachusetts prisons for a total of about 15 years, did research in the uh, a violence prevention experiment in the San Francisco jails for about 10 years. And really, for the past almost 55 years, I have been spending my time really specializing in studying the causes and prevention of
1: violence. I don't think psychoanalysis, until Jim's work, ever actually studied these men. And Jim did. I mean, in a way, his work is a breakthrough in the use of psychoanalytic techniques to understand a subpopulation that a psychiatrist never really studied. You can see why they're frightening. <laughs> you don't earn money. It's perfectly understandable. But I think Jim was in a position because of his background, both in literature and, and in psychoanalysis. He is an analyst as well as a psychiatrist to sort of use this technique with these very violent men. And what he found is they had, they had no voices. And that in an appropriate environment, these voices emerged and they began telling us these absolutely traumatic stories of how the culture had deformed them in various ways. And then he had this discovery, and I think it was a genuine creative discovery. He had studied Shakespeare in college and he began to understand that these men, and you can see it in that opening introduction, he says, this man is Othello. And uh, he began to draw upon his learning about Shakespeare that Shakespeare is an extraordinary analyst. He, he diagnoses the roots of violence in men. And once he had the plays in his mind, he began using the plays as a sort of diagnostic tool. There was nothing in psychiatry or psychoanalysis which helped him, but these plays did. And I think the book is really an explanation, and elaboration of what he saw. I do think his work is... A real breakthrough in the human sciences. And it happens to be focused on violence, which, of course, is is a major issue for us now.
0: If you can elaborate a little bit about why William Shakespeare's writing is so relevant and so prescient.
2: He gave really detailed, intimate, almost microscopic, second to second descriptions of what was going on in the minds of people and in their hearts, and their feelings, as well as their thoughts, that led up to acts of, oh my God, just intolerable degrees of violence. I mean, it's hard to sit through some of Shakespeare's plays. The violence is so horrible and horrifying and extreme. What I found, it was so helpful to me when I was trying to understand men in prisons who had done the same things. Violence that was just as horrific and Nauseating and and horrifying, because of my familiarity with Shakespeare's plays, I realized the most violent of the men I was seeing in prison—they just walked right out of Shakespeare's plays. I saw Othello, I saw Richard the Third, I saw *Timon of Athens*, I, I saw the hitmen that Macbeth hired, and on, I could go on and on and on. He understood these guys and helped me to understand them because he he was so right on. One of the words he uses most frequently in his plays in describing what is going on in the minds and hearts of the men who become murderers is the word shame. Another one is the word dishonor. When they feel dishonored, when they feel shamed, that is when they become violent. And that's what I saw. That's what I found in the prisons over and over again. When I would ask somebody why he had assaulted or even killed somebody, they said, because he disrespected me. And they use that term disrespect so often that they abbreviated it into the slang term uh, dist. He dissed me. And it struck me that when somebody uses a word so often they abbreviate it, it tells you something about how central it is in their moral and emotional vocabulary. But that, that was exactly what Shakespeare describes. Men are disrespected when they are dishonored, when they are ridiculed. And he describes this over and over in detail. I would say Shakespeare's fictions, his plays, really are my case histories. I was treating his plays as if they were case histories because they really described in detail the violent criminals I was seeing in
1: the prisons. Elizabethan England, I believe, was still dominantly a shame culture. And I think Shakespeare knew these violent men. He, he knew Elizabeth's court. And I think you can see it in the great tragedies. And he's studying this. How how does a man become a Macbeth who still has a conscience? Uh, how does a man who is capable of love like Otello turn into this patriarchal monster that turns on the woman he loves and murders her? They saw this. I mean, Essex turned on Elizabeth. I mean, the British Elizabeth, they were familiar with this. Right, how men turn on women and how men become monsters who yet still have consciences. But something happens in this period, in this transition from a shame to a guilt culture. And this is what Lady Macbeth is so important. I think Iago has a similar role to play. I think the fact that this work is still so so contemporary is because we still are a mixed up shame and guilt culture. Oh yeah. And I think the men Jim studied really are. Dominantly, much more than most of us, a shame. In a way, they're a microcosm of what a shame culture once was. I do think we are still much more of a shame culture than we as Americans recognize. And and I think you can see that in Trump.
2: Absolutely. What he does is dangerous. He incites violence. And he has succeeded in getting violence. The January 6th insurrection was violent. Several people died as a result. It was an attempted coup d'etat. I mean, from the beginning, he has been advocating and inciting violence. And that is true of shame-driven political
0: leaders throughout history. The of Athens comes to mind.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Hitler comes to mind. Yeah. 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 I mean, Hitler was essentially uh, in favor of aggressive violence against all liberal states. People couldn't believe it. (laughs) Uh, But boy, did he show them.
0: I think it's a lack of imagination on our parts, <laughs> on the yes. parts of liberal, scientifically based doubters. Uh, right. It's just lack of imagination,
1: and you can see it in Putin. Really, I think. In, oh yes. Oh in yes. More contemporary yes. circumstances. I mean,
2: if you if you look at the documentation, these leaders actually showed us how they incited violence and why they did. Hitler came to office on the campaign promise to undo what he called the shame of Versailles, the Versailles Peace Treaty. He felt Germany's national honor had been damaged by the war guilt clause that blamed them for World War II and the sanctions that were going to punish Germany for their participation in the war. But you see an echo of that in Trump. He came to power on the campaign promise to undo what he said the Democrats had done, which is, as he put it, to make America the laughingstock of the world. So he was saying the same thing Hitler said about Germany, that we had become shamed among the nations of the world because of uh, groups that, in his own society, that he was going to eliminate. Vladimir Putin described his violence in the scorched earth War policies he fomented against the Chechens before he started the war against Ukraine. When he said that the people of the West may not understand this, well, we will not permit the national pride of Russia to be humiliated. So again, Hitler, Putin, Trump, they're all inciting their followers to violence and they're gaining power by saying our country has been shamed by our enemies I am the only one who can undo the shame, and the only way to do that is by means of violence. So he succeeded in in instigating violence. But see, that's what Shakespeare's history plays show. You see Richard III, you see Henry V, you see the daughters of King Lear, and he, uh, he shows how these people elicited violence from their followers, of the most horrific violence, I mean, genocidal violence. If we want to learn how to prevent violence, I think we need to learn from Shakespeare, and we can learn from just contemporary and recent history, which again, what Shakespeare illustrates in his history plays. We yes. see the same thing happening now that he describes in his plays.
0: You say in your book, your analysis is violence is not an instinct or an uncontrollable urge, but rather a language that's rooted in these two powerful psychological states and i find that definition really interesting that it's a language and not a feeling not an instinct
2: how do we think of violence as a language i'm saying that it's both a general language and a specific language in general terms i think domestic violence and rape you know male violence against women is it's communicating a message it's saying that men are dominant they are entitled to dominate women as well as other men. And any woman who challenges that is a legitimate target for male violence. The language itself communicates that message, that I have a right to treat you this way, is what the violent man is saying to the women he values. When I ran a 10-year violence prevention experiment in the San Francisco jails, which was just dramatically successful in reducing the level of violence on the part of a group that consisted entirely of men who were there for violent crimes, about half of whom were there for domestic violence. And what we uh, found over and over again is these men had been operating on the, in a way, the unconscious assumption. They didn't even think of it as a belief. They just thought it was reality. That the world was divided into the superior and the inferior. And that in that demarcation, men were defined as superior, and women as inferior. And any woman who challenged a man's belief that he was superior to her was threatening his manhood. He would be emasculated if he let her defy his orders or his rules, and if she did, he would violently attack her. He might kill her. Yeah, and and at the worst, absolutely kill her. One thing that happened when they became aware that they had this assumption and kind of how absurd it is and how arbitrary it is, they began to say that they had been brainwashed by our whole society from the time they were little children. They abandoned that. They realized that mistaken and absurd belief had ruined their lives, as well as the lives of the people they had violated. And they had alienated people whose relationship they actually wanted. They then became interested in educating the new men who were coming into the jail. And so they've started wanting to run the therapy groups themselves that would help them recognize this. So we trained them as therapists to run the therapy groups themselves, just the way alcoholics anonymous, as people who suffer from alcoholism, as sometimes the best counselors for other people who are alcoholic. So this is a very successful program. Because again, as I'm saying, the violence was a message. At a more specific level, I hate to say, to recount some of these, because some some of this violence is so horrifying, but Aristotle once pointed out, and also so did Euripides in ancient Greece, that shame is perceived in the eyes of other people. When you have an audience seeing how ridiculous you are, or how unimportant you are, or how contemptible you are, it's being seen by other people, or being talked about, having people... Uh, laugh at you or ridicule you. That's what stimulates shame. So what do people who are ashamed do? They attack the eyes and the tongues of the people they uh, they felt shamed by. Edmund in King Lear, he incites his followers to gouge out the eyes of his father, who had been humiliating him from the very opening line, the opening scene. And uh, in Titus Andronicus, the young men who have raped a young woman, cut out her tongue so that she can't talk against them and and bring shame upon them. I saw a man in the prison who had gouged out the eyes and the tongue of a woman he had raped and murdered because he didn't like the way she was looking at me and I didn't want her to be talking about me. So the, the, the language, if I destroy eyes, I will destroy shame. If I destroy tongues, I will destroy shame. It's a specific language so that the act of violence is not meaningless. In the lynchings in the American South, the white men would kill blacks if they thought the black man either had raped or attempted to rape or even just whistled at a white woman because that challenged their manhood that they weren't men enough to protect the honor of their women. So what would they do? They would castrate the man. Because the punishment fits the crime. Violence really is a language in a very specific sense. The parts of the body that are attacked are not meaningless. People cut off the heads of people because the head is the seed of honor. And uh, if you, you can violate and shame a corpse even after you've killed the person. These are symbolic ways of transferring shame from oneself onto one's victim. And undoing the shame oneself feels... Vulnerable to. So we know that violence is not instinctual because instincts are universal. They are not instincts. We have instincts to eat, to drink, to reproduce. I mean, these are 100% in cultures throughout the world. If they weren't, the human race would have gone extinct a long time ago. But acts of violence actually are relatively rare. The murder rate in America is generally sort of from five to 10 per 100,000 people. Per year. That's that's extraordinarily small part of our population. Suicide rates are about double that. And it's still a very small percentage rate. That is not not at all showing the universality that instincts show. So I think the notion that violence is instinctual is a great mistake. And it really inhibits us from getting at the actual causes of violence, which I would say are mostly the ways in which we create inequality. Social inequality, economic inequality, political inequality. And the only solution for that is democracy. Having everybody treated as equal under the law and as economically equal as possible.
0: Yeah, you do write in your book about William Shakespeare's history plays that they depict endless cycles of violence created by hereditary monarchy and aristocracy as a political system in the parenthesis, which simply enlarged forms of family violence, which I thought was a very interesting side point, and that he wrote this at a time when criticizing the monarchy was a capital offense, which I yes, also... Course, it's also it's just libel. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about why democracy is the antidote?
2: Well, I think that if we look at the absence of democracy, where you divide people into the superior and the inferior, like like the violent criminals in the San Francisco jails, what you're doing is you're humiliating people at the bottom to be regarded as lower class, which is the term we use for the poor. Lower is is the English equivalent of the Latin term inferior, which means lower. So if people are lower class, they're treated as inferior. Upper means superior is the Latin word for upper. So the upper classes are superior, they have Pride, which in Latin is superbia. It comes from the same linguistic root. So, democracy undoes all that. It undoes hierarchy and creates equality so that you don't have an inferior class that's going to have feelings of inferiority, which is a term for feelings of shame uh, and humiliation. So, if you treat people as equal in dignity, and uh,
1: to be human is to be worthy of respect. I think what we're saying is that the master normative concept in democracy is equality. And and we criticize democracies to the extent they don't give us equality. I mean, that's that's why we criticize racism, sexism, and homophobia. These are failures to regard people as equal. That's an internal argument within democracy. I think our general view of violence. It's a necessary condition that there be this kind of patriarchal humiliation, but it's not sufficient. That it can be undone if there is a background of education, equal opportunity, and the like. I mean, mean, Jim's work shows this. I mean, here with these extremely violent men, he treats them with respect. He tries to inculcate in them what it is, rather than acting out their violence, to actually discuss it, And really, the main therapy Jim has discovered, I think, is that if you give them a way of talking about their problems, they see them. I mean, the consequence of his use of this in in the San Francisco prisons was astonishing. He lowered the rate of recidivism to an astonishing degree. So this works. It also saves money. (laughs) You know, prisons are very expensive. We pay a terrible price as Americans for our sort of irrational return. The damage it does to the prisoners and the damage and the astronomical amounts. We pay pointlessly in institutions which worsen the problem.
0: Yes, I do want to drill down into the idea of shame for a little bit. You write that it's a humiliation in the form of soul murder or death of the self to be dishonored or shamed. And some men experience the death of selves when they are overwhelmed by shame and engage in violence in order to resurrect the dead self. I find this extremely fascinating. Can you elaborate?
1: These are the terms that they actually use. So let i let okay. speak about this. Yeah, no, I was surprised to hear that i have never read this
2: before. I never heard it. But the most violent men in the prison would tell me that they themselves had died long before they started killing other people. What they meant by that was they felt dead inside. They used terms like empty, numb, lifeless. They felt like they had uh, ropes and cords in their bodies rather than nerves and veins. They would cut themselves to see if blood would flow to prove they were alive. And they found that sense of deadness and numbness more tormenting than even pain would be. They had lost the capacity for either emotional feelings or physical sensations. What struck me was they had died because they'd been so overwhelmed by shame and humiliation throughout their lives. And they would often, you ask them, when they started feeling dead, they could describe an experience in which they had been just totally, utterly humiliated and treated like dirt. And that was the point when they just really just felt Dead, And then they they were desperate just to kill other people as a way of trying to resurrect their dead self. Shame and guilt are as powerful in motivating human behavior as love and hate are, because they are love and hate, except as directed toward the self. Shame is the absence of self-love or feelings of self-esteem, self-worth, pride, dignity, and so on. And the opposite of shame is pride, which is self-love. Now, if a person is deprived of self-love, deprived of pride by being shamed, there is no love for the self, either from other people or from the self. What I discovered was the self needs love as much as the body needs oxygen. If the body is deprived of oxygen, the body dies. If the self is deprived of love, the self dies. And that is what I discovered in the prisons, working with violent inmates. Now, guilt is different in that guilt is self-hate. It's self-condemnation, feelings that one is, deserves punishment. And the opposite of the feeling of guilt is the feeling of innocence. Now, what guilt motivates is not killing other people. It motivates killing the self. It motivates suicide. When you feel guilty, it's the opposite of feeling innocent. But I discovered, though, nobody feels as innocent as the criminals. They feel absolutely justified in what they have done. We used to have a saying in the prisons, among all the staff members that I worked with and myself, you never meet a guilty man in prison. They wouldn't deny they committed the act of murder or rape that they had been sentenced to prison for. They simply said it was morally justified. There was nothing wrong in what they did.
1: This L, I think, is what made Richard III, why we really start with him, because he is really a psychopath. Of the sort that Jim is describing, he has no no conception of guilt whatsoever. And indeed, at the end of the play, he struggles with this issue: uh, what is this guilt? I mean, it's not something he has experienced. He is capable of illimitable personal and political violence, but it's all rooted, of course. The play begins with his humiliation. He's a hunchback, unlovable. Uh, And the uh, the idea of humiliation for us really includes cultural humiliation: the humiliation of the hunchback, the humiliation of Edmund as being illegitimate, or the humiliation of Shylock as being Jewish. And they they do elicit violence. And Shakespeare shows us that again and again in all all of these different contexts.
2: To Richard III, his physical deformity that made Richard III so humiliated, he says in the opening opening speech in that play, because he can't be a lover because he feels women will reject him because he's so physically deformed, And the children uh, laugh at him and so forth. So he he said, since I cannot be a lover, I'll prove a villain and kill people and and gain honor and pride by means of assassinating so many people that he becomes king, which he would not have, you know, if he'd been nonviolent. But I found that described one of the worst crimes that I was testifying about uh, in court, a young man in Omaha who... uh, had committed what he thought would be a perfect crime. This was a young man who, as a teenager, had been playing with an abandoned gas can and uh, playing with matches with a friend of his, and it blew up in his face and burned off most of the skin on his face. So his face was very disfigured, and many surgeries had failed to really restore his face to anything but deformed. And then he wanted to marry a woman, and when she rejected him and married another man, He felt so shamed and humiliated that he decided to kill them by placing a carcinogenic chemical in their milk and orange juice in their refrigerator when they were out of their house. He worked in a cancer research lab, so he had access to a carcinogenic chemical. And he thought that this would induce cancer in them months hence, and he'd never be uh, suspected of murder. Actually, he put so much of it in that... Two people died just from the immediate toxic effects of it. They didn't have to wait till they got cancer. So the police found him and and discovered him. But my point is, he was acting on the same motives that Richard III was. I've often said that to use violence as a means of trying to undo one's own shame is like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. The
0: more violent you are, the more people hate you. It also makes me think of the whole idea of being kind of cast out of the human family saying you know yes. you you don't belong you don't measure up as a human being that you're kind of cast out of the is a very 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 painful human family so to speak yeah
2: yes. one of the most painful experiences people can can have it can be overwhelming and as i said it can cause what people experience is the death of the self when they feel that nobody loves them But I think all you really need is the love of one person. When psychiatrists have studied children who've grown up in a very dysfunctional, very violent family, but one of them grows up to be really totally pro-social and and normal and non-violent. So this is a study of the invulnerable child. And what they found is this is a child who found at least one adult in their life, whether it was a teacher, an uncle, or a grandparent or whatever, who they could trust, who had faith in them, and they could rebuild a sense of an intact self based on that and and not succumb to the feeling of being overwhelmingly shamed and rejected.
0: We talked a little bit about it before, but I want to circle back to patriarchy. That patriarchy, because it's founded in gender hierarchy, is a shame culture in itself. Can you elaborate, kind of develop that thought?
1: It's a shame culture where patriarchy dominates, which is most human cultures, which are constantly at war with one another.
2: And in, in America today, our political polarization, and it's that fight between hierarchy versus equality,
1: authoritarianism versus democracy. When, one of the difficulties, I think, L is the difficulty uh, that men have in seeing the force of patriarchy in their own lives and how destructive it is. I mean, patriarchy really harms men. I mean, Jim can speak to this, but because men, I think, are initiated into patriarchy so early, they have difficulty seeing how destructive it is in their own lives. Uh, And I think that is the reason that uh, we're in the problem we're in. I mean, women are much more likely to see it than men. Men fight our wars. Uh, it's men who have higher vulnerability to it's men who are largely killed. And Jim can go on with this for hours, but it's very difficult for our culture to see it. And I do think it is part of our deep problem. I think many women, in my experience, see the problem of patriarchy very clearly, but because they're silenced, they can't speak about it. And men are threatened by these voices, they tend to explode in violence. So, violence, in a way, keeps patriarchy in place. I'd also say that patriarchy keeps violence in place.
2: The two go together and reinforce each other. But in our sexist and shame-driven culture, and we're we're a mixture of both a shame culture and a guilt culture, as I said, the shame culture defines masculinity, among other things, as in terms of how much somebody is or is not willing to be violent. One of the royal roads to the unconscious in human psychology is Etymology, the origins of words. In both Greek and Latin, the word for courage is the same as the word for masculinity. In Greek, it's andrea, which is the root of our word androgen, the chemical that makes people men. But it also means courage, because to be a man in that warlike culture, you had to have courage because men were the soldiers. And it takes courage to be a soldier because you are required to kill other men. But you know that by doing that, you're provoking them to kill you. So that takes courage, but it requires violence. And that's the way you define masculinity. The same in Latin. The word vir means man, but it also means soldier. Because to be a man is to be a soldier. To be a soldier is to be a man. And that's the root of our word virile and virility. It's also the, word, the root of our word virtue. Because in that warlike culture, the preeminent virtue was courage and warlikeness and being a good soldier and being willing to kill people. So it's hardly surprising that men like the men in the San Francisco jails, they act on this without even realizing where this is coming from. They will go to their own deaths in order to try to undo their shame by showing what courageous men they are. That's the root of the suicide bombers in the terrorist groups. It's the root of the Mass murderers who kill as many people as they can and then kill themselves. One thing I would hear from many prison inmates is that their goal would be to go to their own death, but in a blaze of glory, where they would kill as many
1: people as possible till they themselves were killed by the police. This is violence exemplified by Timon of Athens, and you can see it in Hitler. Oh. When Germany is defeated, he, he wants to destroy everything. That That is exactly the psychology that Jim is describing in these violent men, and that Shakespeare analyzes in Timon of Athens. This is a very familiar thing in political violence. Shakespeare describes in detail, and both Othello
2: and uh, Macbeth describe how a man's violence is stimulated by exposing him to shame. Iago exposes him to shame by deceiving him into thinking that Othello's wife, Desdemona, has been unfaithful to him. And Lady Macbeth shames Macbeth by saying he will be like a woman and shamed if he doesn't commit murder and overcome his guilt feelings that would inhibit him from that. But I think Shakespeare really makes that very clear. And again, he uses the term shame in Macbeth. Lady Macbeth herself uses the term shame over and over again on Macbeth of what he will be subject to if he doesn't kill the king, Duncan, and, and becomes king himself.
0: I think Lady Macbeth kind of personifies all of those of us who are attracted to power for things that they can do for us, Yes. never expecting that that power will actually turn back on us and destroy not not only us, but everything.
2: Yes, Lady Macbeth is the model yes, for the women be. who voted for Trump.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unconsciously, I think. I mean, Carol Gilligan and mine our in our several books on patriarchy, particularly our second book after the Trump election, argue that what really explains his winning in that election is he, he turned the nation to look at this issue through the lens of patriarchy. And once you do that, you know, uh, you know, you really are a, a disallowing a kind of democratic voice, and uh, I don't think he consciously knows this, Trump. But I do think he he uses it in a quite brilliant political dramaturgy,
0: and its power continues right up to now. I did want to jump to so since women are, for all intents and purposes, relegated to sort of permanent second class, no power, shamed. Position, I would add, does the shame or guilt ethic in the way that you're talking about it for men pertain to women's psychology at all? You know what I'm trying to get at.
1: This, I think, we illustrate. I mean, as in your in Antony and Cleopatra, what makes Antony and Cleopatra so fascinating to us, and I think made it fascinating to Shakespeare, is they're both rulers. I mean, they're they're equals. She's the queen of Egypt. He is one of the uh, dictators of Rome. So Shakespeare creates a world where they're both equals, and they fall passionately in love. Antony, for the first time in his life, he has sex with everyone, men and women, but he's never been in love. And he meets this woman who's very remarkable. She was extremely intelligent, multiliterate, also quite capable of killing people, uh, if it stood in her way. And they fall evidently passionately in love. And it's a love of equals. And this is a man who has been your patriarchal man, you know, a leading general, etc. But when, when he meets this woman, what Shakespeare puts in his mouth the, the words, I don't care about all that. And he is a Roman man who is for the first time in his life jolted out of patriarchy because of egalitarian love for a complex, interesting, equal woman is, is going to upset all his expectations. I mean, she leaves after the, the great battle, and because he loves her, he follows her, and all of his men say, "How can you do this? Follow a woman?" And that's what leads to his defeat. His soldiers, what's happened to our patriarchal leader? And they abandon him because he's failed in his role. And I do I do think Shakespeare shows us. I mean, as I think we point out in our book, that love is possible, but under patriarchy, it's really a problem.
2: And let me get back to your question about women and shame and violence. For example, why aren't women as violent if not more violent than men? Because in some ways, they're more shamed than men. They're regarded as inferior by definition to men. So why aren't they more violent than men rather than less? Let me quote a woman who is, I think, one of the greatest psychologists of the 20th century, Virginia Woolf, who described in one of her major polemics against male violence called Three Guineas, she describes, she says that Men, and again, she's talking here about the gender role definitions that our culture provides for masculinity and femininity. She says men are most deeply shamed if they are accused of lacking courage, or in other words, I'd put it in our slang terms, a sissy, a wimp, a coward, that sort of thing. That's the most shameful accusation you can make against a boy in the schoolyard or a man in battle or a man generally that he was lacking in courage, he was unwilling to be violent. Now, women, she said, feel they're most deeply shamed when they are accused of what she called unchastity. And if you think about the insults that men, the shaming words that men will hurl against women is to call a woman a whore, a slut, a bitch, and these terms that describe her as being sexually promiscuous. The idea that a man loses honor If he fails to be violent, he's not courageous enough to fight. A woman loses honor if she is too sexually active. But the whole thing revolves around sex rather than violence. On the other hand, it is clear that women sometimes do commit murder. I thought one of the most clear examples of that was in Euripides' play, Medea, about a woman who becomes so enraged with jealousy, and jealousy is one of the versions of shame, You feel jealous of somebody if you feel inferior to whoever you feel jealous of. She feels jealous because her husband has an infatuation with another woman and is going to leave her, and she kills their children. Well, I saw exactly that happen in Massachusetts, a woman whose husband became infatuated with another woman, and she killed their children. So what I'm saying is, if you shame a woman enough, a woman can become capable of committing a murder. But it takes a lot of violence, and it happens much less frequently because that is not the way that women's pride versus shame is defined. One last point I want to make is: there's been a, such huge amounts of discussion about abortion and why people are against or favor abortion. One important thing that I think has not been noticed or commented on is that people who oppose abortion are people who feel that they are vulnerable to being shamed by having a woman have sex outside of marriage or outside of their purview without having to pay the consequences, namely pregnancy and birth. In other words, opposing abortion is a way of trying to control women's sexuality and making sure that it will be completely under the control of men so that women cannot escape the costs of having sex. If they have it in or outside of marriage, they've got to bear the baby. To oppose abortion is is that. It's based on men's fear of being shamed by women's sexuality. And that's the way masculine superiority over women is defined. So what I'm saying is these gender roles are defined in opposite terms. Men are shamed for reasons that are the
1: opposite of reasons. Women are shamed and vice versa. Jim, your mentioning of the abortion issue has to be underscored because here you have a Trump-appointed court which has reversed Roe v. Wade, and I think clearly reflects the dominance in the coalition, which has led to Dobbs, of a sort of anti-sexual coalition. The Catholic Church, which is one of the most patriarchal religions, has long had this anti-sexual attitude, right? I mean, any form of non-procreated sex under Catholic dogma is wrong and gay sex is wrong. And this is a patriarchal religion supposedly of celibate men who know nothing about sex to start with. And we know that this view is very much in the background of several of the justices in the Coalition on the Court I mean, they can't admit that because it would raise anti-establishment problems because they're giving expression to sectarian religion. But I mean, the coalition is very hostile to women's free sexuality and to their controlling their reproductive history, whether they're married or not. And the idea that they want to perpetuate uh, that women must get pregnant, right, which is supposedly the natural deterrent to sexuality. I think that's a very insightful analysis of the problem we're in and what Trump has managed to accomplish willy-nilly. I think patriarchy is really the central issue.
0: Absolutely. and But of course, at this juncture, women, having had the gains we have had in the last 50 years, aren't going to go back yes. <laughs> to accepting no rights. So there, there's enormous friction that's going to happen. And I fear that in order to get women back to no rights... A lot of violence will be required to do that. That frightens me.
1: I think with good reason. I think you're absolutely right. Well, if if we're right, any threat to patriarchy is going to lead to violence, which I think is what you're saying, Al. But it's I think it's very important that it be seen. This is coming out of something systemic in American culture.
0: Right, so I just want to say it's not just the shaming of sexuality or infidelity that threatens or destroys male honor. It's also disobeying male control. Yeah. I work in a domestic violence arena a lot, and you know, a good portion of domestic violence homicides happen on separation. The moment when it's clear to the man that he has lost, definitively lost control of his woman and his family. So could you talk, and I mean, jumping back to Othello again, can you speak a little bit about that? Aside from shaming, it's all also about control.
1: So I think what you describe in The Battered Women is exactly what our psychology would would lead you to expect. I mean, these women are real students of male violence, right? And they they watch it because often, if I understand this, there are cycles that take place of apology and say, I'll never do it again. And then they do do it again. And then it gradually escalates. These women are watching this. And our students of it, really. And, you know, very occasionally, as you know, we'll kill these men. It's not common. And it's a big test for the criminal law, whether this is a justification or excuse, because some of these women quite credibly believe that they're about to be murdered. And there there aren't sufficient facilities to stop it. The police don't intervene properly. The crisis centers don't address it. And so they are really engaging incredibly proportionate self-defense. But the criminal law has a big problem (laughs) understanding this, I think, because it's still excessively
0: patriarchal.
1: It doesn't take seriously the plight of many American women in patriarchal marriages. That's what I think.
0: I agree. There is a quote from your book from the Othello section that says he hated her because he loved her. And he hated her because in inducing him to love her, she had induced him to allow himself to become vulnerable to being hurt by her.
1: Yes.
2: I mean, that's the that's the dilemma there. Now, if we want to learn how to prevent these kinds of crimes, and I'm speaking here in terms of preventive medicine. We're thinking, you know, how can you prevent heart attacks? How can you prevent cancer? Well, I'm saying, how can you prevent murder? You look at the causes, and then you figure out the cures from that. One thing that I found that I was, again, it made sense, and yet I hadn't really anticipated it, the most effective single program that we had in the Massachusetts prisons for uh, reducing the level of violence, which we, we reduced dramatically, was, of all things, getting a college degree while in prison. What we found was that over a 25-year period, several hundred men, they were in for murders and rapes and very serious crimes, had left prison after, you know, 15 years or so and not ever returned to prison. These were the people who'd gotten a college degree while in prison, which to me meant that they had gained a nonviolent source of self-esteem and pride and feelings of adequacy that they couldn't gain in any other way. I mean, education is the most direct way that any of us and all of us gain a sense of self-respect and elicit respect from other people is by gaining knowledge and skills that are actually useful to other people as well as to the self. If we can provide men in general with enough nonviolent and actually constructive means of gaining and maintaining self-respect and pride in themselves, they are much less likely to become violent. Punishment is not what prevents violence. And that's true from research on child abuse and child development. The more severely children are punished, the more violence they become, both in childhood and in adulthood. So punishment is counterproductive. I mean, again, it's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. It only creates more violence. What creates nonviolence is giving people access to nonviolent resources for gaining and maintaining self-esteem and being treated as worthy of equal respect to everybody else. And if we can provide that
1: and not shame men for failing to be patriarchs or male supremacists. I mean, America is a particular problem with this because we do have our homicide rates are seven times higher than Western Europe, five times worse than most English-speaking democracies. And we have, of course... The worst problem of inequality. I mean, the social democracies of Europe have much, much lower violence rates than we have. So I do think part of the real problem has to do with the degree of inequality we allow, which is tied into the degree of violence, which is not inevitable. It comes from a sort of irresponsible way of reading democracy, which is altogether too patriarchal, and it sort of is marked by the criminal justice system. We still have a death penalty. We tolerate solitary confinement. We have the highest imprisonment rate of any country in the world. This has to be seen to be connected, I think, to a problem and a crisis in our conception of democracy, really. I mean that's the way, and these men, though I think evidently the best predictor of a sort of authoritarian personality I've seen in a recent study is lack of education, and that this is a cultural problem. It really is a cultural problem, and you and our politics makes it more and more obvious, including the abortion decision and uh, other things. What? Yeah, and it, but our view is it can be resisted, but you have to start with seeing the root of the problem.
0: Yeah, and you say something that sounds. First, it sounds very counterintuitive, but then it makes so much sense that morality does not prevent violence, that William Shakespeare shows us that morality does not prevent violence, but the very opposite, morality stimulates violence, and by doing so causes deaths.
1: Jim will, talk, will want to talk about this more than I, but you can see it in, his, in one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, Measure for Measure, which is essentially a critique of retributivism.
2: Let me explain how I view morality. I'm saying that shame and guilt are the main emotions of morality, but they each motivate a different and opposite moral value system. So I speak of a shame ethic and a guilt ethic, that is, ethical value systems that are motivated by sensitivity to shame versus sensitivity to guilt. I'm saying in a shame ethic, the worst evil is shame, shame and humiliation. And the highest good is the opposite of shame, namely pride and honor. In a guilt ethic, pride is not the highest good, it's the worst evil. It's the deadliest of the seven deadly sins in the guilt ethic of Christianity. And humiliation is not the worst evil. Humility is the highest good, the root of all the other virtues. And to the shame-driven person, humility is just self-humiliation. So these are directly opposite moral value systems. If you think of what are the main moral commandments that morality commands, the main moral commandment of guilt ethics is thou shalt not kill. The main value system of shame ethics is thou shalt kill. That is, we have honor killings where people are obligated to kill somebody who has violated their honor. And that's what honor killings are all about. If a woman has sex outside of marriage, the man can only regain his honor and the honor of his entire family if he kills the woman and or her lover. Whereas in a guilt ethic, you're taught, don't kill others, kill yourself. So guilt ethics motivates suicide, just like shame ethics motivates homicide. So that's what I mean when I say that morality doesn't prevent violence, it simply redirects it. Shame ethics directs violence toward other people. If you're shame-dominated, you'll choose violence against others, not against
1: yourself. Our view is American retributivism looks like it's it's centered in guilt, but it's really centered in shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which which you can see by the fact that we retain the death penalty, and most of the other countries we compare ourselves to have avoided it.
2: But let me discuss what, what makes morality unnecessary and redundant. Since we know it's harmful and stimulates violence, see either others or the self. What transcends morality is love. When you love somebody, you don't need a moral commandment telling you to treat them well. You voluntarily and spontaneously want to treat them well because that's what love means. And to the degree that we can create the social and psychological conditions that will motivate people and also give them the, the emotional capacity for feelings of love, they will not choose violence. And that's something that Shakespeare illustrates In plays like Measure for Measure, there's an old saying that tragedies end in funerals, comedies end in marriages. But marriages, you know, is a symbol for love. I mean, that's what it means in a drama.
1: That's what makes Measure for Measure so extraordinary, because it ends with marriages. Yeah. No one, there is no death.
2: And nobody's punished. Nobody's put in prison. Nobody's executed. But they all get
1: married. Shakespeare, in the midst of this very retributive British culture, which has these horrifying forms of punishment, writes this astonishing, largely for uh, a legal audience of a young man in the inns of court, you know.
2: But, you know, we the term comedy itself simply means a play that has a happy ending, meaning it's describing how you've been able to prevent violence. Because tragedy is what ends in violence. And what Shakespeare shows is that love provides comedy meaning, a happy ending, as opposed to a tragic ending. And that's what he illustrates, is how to prevent violence. And uh, the answer is love. Now, I know many people say, oh, that's naive. You know, people are not capable of loving each other. The fact is, all the research we have on child development going back to infancy, one thing we are born with is an instinct to love. We don't have an instinct to kill other people. We do have an instinct to love other people. The, the baby exchanges eye contact with the mother and seeks contact with the mother, and the mother reciprocates and the baby reciprocates. It's mutual. We have in the brain what I call mirror neurons, meaning that you imitate how other people behave and feel. If you are surrounded by people who love you, beginning with the mother, You imitate the mother and you develop the capacity for love.
1: I do think Jim Gilligan's work, the way he used psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic techniques with these very violent men was a work of love on his part. That is, to, he listened to them. No one has ever listened to these men. I mean, mean, Jim, who is a deeply loving man, adapted a technique that had never been used with these very violent men and had these astonishing results. They talked, and in a way, his innovations in psychoanalysis and psychology exemplified the force of love. They taught me what causes violence, and they taught me
2: how to prevent it. But it was very mutual. They would often say that I and my staff were the first people in their lives who had shown enough interest in them and enough respect for them to be interested in hearing the story of their lives and hearing how they felt and what had led them to do what they did. That was their first experience of this, and lo and behold, the effect was a dramatic reduction in the frequency and the severity of violence that they committed. I think that's universally true of human beings.
0: Well, thank you, thank you, well, thank you very
2: much, Al, for showing this interest and in
1: supporting our work. Yeah, world. we really yeah, appreciate it.
0: thank you. It. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson, and music by Beware of Darkness.